0: Hello, and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I'm Nomi Key Konst, and today our country starts again to see if we can make a better social democracy. I will not even drop a hint of a forecast about this election. Just the word forecast could get us shut down. (laughs) So we have to be very careful. Uh, Social media and tech companies are really looking out for any potential forecasting as we saw what happened in 2016. Perhaps, Perhaps they're all trying to make amends for past information transgressions by scrubbing any premature call of the election. I'm not all sure I approve of the power to do so, but anywho, uh, for today, I will put the conversation off. Since today, we all know that the gravest danger is Donald Trump trying to create chaos by claiming victory, to suppress the counting of all the votes, saying, oh, it's gonna be decided today, even though there's millions of votes that have not been counted. And mail-in voting is not a new thing. And it's not like Republicans don't use mail-in voting in Republican states too. Hmm. So instead of trying to predict what is about to happen. Why don't we look back at 2020, excuse me, to some of the things that have already happened. Things that strengthen us as progressives, as the movement, and give us a lot to build on. Start by saying, we came closer this year than in a very long time to putting a true progressive at the top of the ticket. Losing hurt, I feel it still to this day. But we are the rising electoral force, setting the agenda that will get us out of this disaster. And everyone knows it. And capital forces are afraid of it. Our most immediate opponents, the neoliberals, are back on their heels. Rana Faruhar wrote just yesterday that the Trump administration has, quote, exposed the fact that neoliberalism is dead. Well, I would like to say that the movement killed neoliberalism. But Donald Trump exposed how weak their incrementalist, austerity, privatization, globalist approach was in fact never going to make people's lives better, immediately or in the long term. There is no incrementalist solution to this crisis exacerbated by Donald Trump. There is no austerity measures that can revive our economy. The neoliberal idea was always a, a new brand of the same old, same old. However you apportion the causes, the reality is that the third way as those middle of the roaders, Bill Clinton and Tony Blair used to call it, it is no longer a way at all and not a way that anyone sees as working, a failed political experiment. The fight now will be between progressives, real progressives, working people and authoritarian nationalists, the corporatists to borrow the word from Benito Mussolini and his pals. So pull your boots on again, this fight continues. Which brings us to another big win on our side. Millions of Americans looked fascism in the eye in this election and did not like what they saw. That's a temporary victory. No matter what happens in this election, there will be other Trumps smoother, saner, more competent, maybe even neoliberal. They will be harder to defeat. But for today, the political tide turns our way. We cannot let the neoliberals and their electoral strategy claim victory over fascism. The COVID pandemic has moved the debate in our favor. Before 2020, many Americans not only mistrusted the government, they weren't even sure why we needed the government. (laughs) Well, the pandemic settled that discussion for sure. Uh, We definitely need a CDC. Let's just start with that. There are clearly things that only the government can do. This is bigger than just strengthening our case for Medicare for All, although it sure does do that. Now, this is, this is the underlying question about everything we want to do. Can government be trusted? Is government competent? The market surely won't make sure to, that we give every American healthcare. The market won't make sure we eliminate greenhouse gases. The market won't build us internet access for everybody. The market won't control housing costs. The market surely will not deal with systemic racism. The government may artificially boost and harness the markets to help the quote-unquote economy, aka Wall Street, but only the government has the authority and the scale to make these things happen. We on the left have faced stiff resistance to that idea, but the pandemic and the economic crash have created this moment for our ideas. We need to make full use of it. We need to back these neoliberals into a corner they, so that they are left with no strategy for this recovery, but to invest in people, schools, healthcare, infrastructure, move off fossil fuels, and allocate our giant budget towards the American people. We have the people, and we have this moment. And we have a great election show for you today. Uh, We have two hours for you. So get comfortable. I know there's a lot of shows on right now. Uh, Sending love to Sam Cedar, and the majority report. I will be joining him tonight. So you definitely want to check that out. And, uh, And if you're watching this later, because I know it's the 10th anniversary of the majority report, uh, they are streaming all day long. But, you know, hopefully you guys will get a break and come over here or watch us later. Not live, whatever. Just make sure to get the word out because we have an amazing show. Christopher Halali running as a communist in Vermont. Today's Election Day. Uh, He could be a communist elected to Congress. We're gonna talk about his election. Uh, It's a busy day for him. So I'm excited to hear what he he thinks about this movement uh, and where we go moving forward. Then John Nichols joins us to talk about past elections and how this election, if Joe Biden is elected, uh, we can fight for the most progressive solutions. And then Arun Chowdhury, we talk a little bit about the politics what the map looks like, what the message is. Uh, that's his, his, he's in Germany right now. So he is going to be joining us late in Germany. And then Rep. Chris Rabb out of Swing State, uh, Pennsylvania. And Angela Lang is an organizer in Wisconsin. We're going to talk about those two swing states. And Joseph Givarisi from Our Revolution talks about what they've been able to accomplish in the last four years since Bernie Sanders started our our revolution. <laughs> it's a tongue uh, And then Scotty Nels-Hughes, Republican joins us again. I'm gonna see if she's still with Trump after all this. It's 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 her last day, she could still jump ship. Uh, so we're gonna to talk to her about what she thinks uh, their strategy is and if they're gonna win. And then last but not least, we have David Daly who's gonna talk about some of the gerrymandering, uh, some of the voter intimidation and suppression tactics that have been going on for years and how it's going to potentially impact this election. All right, guys, stick around. We will be back with Christopher Halali. Christopher Halali uh, is joining us from Vermont on Election Day. Happy Election Day, Christopher. Uh, he's a congressional candidate for Vermont's at-large congressional district. Uh, he identifies himself as a communist candidate, which is amazing. Uh, and he is the chair of the Vermont Progressive Progressive Party Orange County Committee, as well as the Versher Town Committee of VPP. Did I get that right? Is that? That's
1: right. That's right. All
0: right. How are you <laughs> feeling today?
1: I'm feeling great. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: We're really excited for you. Um, okay, so I want to talk a little bit about last time you were on. You, you know, we we had a really broad discussion about what you stand for, and uh, you know, so much has happened since since we spoke. But I I really want to understand if you're elected today, how are you going to use your power as not being a Democrat in Congress to push for? What is, I guess some people say, like radically progressive ideas for working people, anti-capitalist ideas?
1: Well, I think the first thing is uh, making alliances across uh, different uh, ideological parties and positions in Congress. For example, if people have a position that's anti-war, anti-imperialist, I will join hands with them to ensure that we decrease military spending. We bring back troops from abroad. We close military bases. We abolish NATO. We do these kinds of things. Because we can't fund a lot of the programs that we want in this country without cutting the military budget. That's just a reality. Yeah. So we have to that's that's the that's the big, you know, sort of golden calf that we have to go after is uh, this the sacred one of the military of the Pentagon and its budget and all of the corporations that are deeply involved whether they'd be in Silicon Valley or on Wall Street. And I think that that's the first step. The biggest thing is if I were elected by some miracle tonight, um, the biggest thing would be using the platform that one has to be able to spread the message because mainstream media isn't covering these issues. They're talking heads, uh, don't talk about them. And in fact, you know, they the, the, they, you know, even when Bernie, for example, praised Cuba's uh, healthcare system, I mean Chris Matthews had a meltdown on MSNBC and was and saying then he that, you know, somehow <laughs> then he lost his job. Oh but, well but that, <laughs> that somehow, you know, uh, the, the, the Cubans were gonna execute people in Central Park. So I think that one of the <laughs> I know it's
0: crazy. I, I can't even I'm so sorry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it is it's crazy. So part of it would be using the platform to basically speak truth to power on a much larger platform, you know, because now you have that position. So you're able to use that vehicle to spread the message and you're able to, and I'm, I I personally have no issue going on any platform, um, you know, regardless of whether it's on Fox, because I think that, for example, there are many Fox viewers who can come over. It takes only a little nudge mm-hmm. to get them over into the left. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's really opening their eyes to see that the people that they're going after Are not the actual enemies, but the enemy is the ruling class. You know, of both of both parties, the corporate wing altogether. So I think that that that's a huge step. And of course, when talking about healthcare, education, childcare, I'll work, you know, as hard as can be to be able to do any sort of progress in those fields. But the biggest the biggest hurdle is going to be being a lone voice in a Congress that is bought and paid for. You know, I joke with the the comrades up here in Vermont. I said, you know, if I get elected, prepare for a funeral. Um, but in in a way, it's you know, I know. Yeah, but Someone but you knock
0: way- on wood. I have nothing to knock on.
1: <laughs> but you know, you know, the, the, the thing, the, the the funny thing is that, you know, it doesn't even have to be, you know, that's I would be harmed, but I would be so cut out of the of of any of the wheeling and dealing because I can't be bought. And, and, and sold. I'm not a member of the two corporate parties and I would just be out in the wilderness, so to speak. So okay. the important... Go ahead. Go ahead.
0: Go, go, go. I I think what's so interesting about what you're saying here is, you know, we we have this cadre of of progressives uh that were elected without any corporate money, small dollar donation funded. Um and you know, you you always see this sect on the on the left supposedly or online that's like, oh, well, you know, AOC's a sellout or or so Rashid is and and of course every single candidate has their own um constituencies right mm-hmm. uh being in new york politics is very different than michigan politics is different than missouri politics with cory bush um and vermont has their own flavor of of politics which gave bernie the ability to be independent mm-hmm. uh and not beholden to the democratic party's you know fundraising games and power brokering that they but someone like an aoc i mean i don't want to but 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 you know it's, it's a little bit more difficult because she has to maneuver the Democratic Party um, internally in New York, the WFP on top of it. Mm -hmm. And, and of course, um, you know, the games that are internally, so she gets a good committee position. So, so you as a congressman, how, how do you still get a good committee position if you're going to go to war with them (laughs) essentially?
1: I I guess the, I guess the main thing is, do you like, do I personally think that I can, I, I should vie for those good committee positions or do I think that it would be better to go to war and to, and to build mm. mass movement and mass power outside of Congress to pressure from outside, from without. And I think that that's actually where real power lies. Real power lies in workers striking, in, you know, shutdowns, in, you know, work stoppages, in people getting out in the streets into the tune of millions and shutting down and saying that we're not going to stand for anymore. Ultimately, uh, if you only focus on electoralism and you put people, you know, in Congress, they're going to be subsumed by the system if you don't have a mass movement behind them that's pushing that system as well. And I think that that's what we're seeing now with AOC and Rashida Talib and Ilan Omar uh, to a lesser extent. But you're seeing that they are now in a party that is, you know, sort of positioning itself now to hopefully take power for them. You know, they're looking mm-hmm. for tonight at a Biden victory. And what does that mean? It means Nancy Pelosi still, you know, a strong corporate side of the Democratic Party solidifying its hold. It's not like Joe Biden is going to be progressive all of a sudden. Yeah. You know. If, he, if they win. And the thing is, the only way to push that kind of progressive reform is going to be from outside. It's right. going to be from mass movements that are going to push from the ground up um, because they can come top down. At this point, top down is controlled by the corporate wing. So if we really want progressive transformation, it has to be from, from the mass organizations. That's what so
0: it we only have a couple of, of minutes left, but I I, I do want to ask you. I and mean, you and I have had conversations about just the stage of our movement, and mm-hmm. you know we are still a uh, far- this version of the movement, I should say, is is mm-hmm. a fairly young movement mm-hmm. still um, in age and just in in years that we've been organizing. But there's another phase. We have some people in office. Uh, the neoliberals now see us as a threat, as as basically everybody does. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we make sure that we are not falling? for the same, um, you know, it's, it's basically a like busting, like, you know, there's union busting, there's movement busting, there's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. pitting people against each other. How do we, at this stage, keep our eyes open going into what could very likely be a Biden administration where the neoliberals are back in control of the, of everything, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, potentially all branches of government. How do we hold true to our convictions and not, um, Continue to to fight with each other the way that we've seen in the last couple of years.
1: I think that we have to hold any admin, whichever which which whether Biden or Trump wins, it's both they're, they're, it's both a loss for the working class in the grand scheme of the system. Right. So I think that we have to hold to their feet to the fire, whoever wins. And for me, that means that we the 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 sort of liberal left cannot go to sleep like they did under Obama for eight years. You know, I mean, you had one of the largest anti war movements in history during Iraq, during the Bush administration. And for the next eight years after Obama went, he went to sleep and Obama expanded the wars and started you know, drone striking in Yemen and regime change in Libya. So I think that ultimately we have to hold their feet to the fire as much and as passionately as we did under the Trump administration because that's also going to take people who might have been Trump supporters to come to our side because we're principled. Ultimately, we, the best thing to do is to remain principled and committed to certain key aspects of the working class movement that can unite, you know, aspects of, you know, what Trumpism it claims to be. I don't really believe in a right populism, but they call it that. Okay. But really, populism is a left thing. It's a working class thing. So how to, how to do that, how to engage that is staying true to the mission and holding any administration to the fire and continuing mass movements and mass organization. That's what we have to do. We cannot settle and just say, oh, okay. Well, we won, and fascism is over." No, because mm-hmm. the system that produced Trump continues to exist, and it will produce someone much worse than Trump in the future. Trump is a buffoon and a reality TV star. The next one is going to be militant and is going to be dedicated ideologically. That's the biggest fear that I have. Not that the and Trump phenomenon even is. Oh, oh, correct, correct, correct. Yeah. But this isn't this isn't this isn't the, the beginning of the end. This is the beginning for me. So we have a long, long fight ahead of us, and we have to continue that fight.
0: Chris, good luck tonight. Um, you know, awesome. sending you all the good juju. We and no matter what happens, I hope you do it again. <laughs> uh, and we we make sure because I feel like everyone just learned about you nationally, and you know, next time <laughs> around. Uh, but you know, there's. I think I think. Listen, because the only reason I say this is because you've been telling me that like you don't think you're going to win, but. Um, I think that there's a pathway here. And I think, you know, if there isn't one right now, uh, next time around for sure. But wishing you all Absolutely. the
1: greatest luck. Thank you so much. Take care. Be right, well. Take care. Take care.
0: <laughs> all right. Uh, next up, this is our special election show. Rapid interviews, lots of, uh, of guests joining us. We have John Nichols, the one and only John Nichols of The Nation. Uh, he is the author of Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's anti-fascist, anti-racist politics. And he's the National Affairs Correspondent for The Nation. Look at all those books. Man. John, you're muted. That. You're muted. There you are. Perfect. There you go. So you are uh, from the swing state of Wisconsin. How are you feeling there? Do you, do you, is the voter suppression, everything that, that folks have been saying?
2: No. <laughs> really? No. Madison's looking at it. Uh, right now, We're. I think we have already per- surpassed 95% turnout um, and moving toward but that probably, we haven't got the two o'clock report, you know, time changing that. But um, we'll probably be over 100% turnout by um, two o'clock with still six more hours to vote. Now that, how do you get above 100%?
0: Yeah, I was going to say, what? Um, that's <laughs> <Dead 100%. people.
2: laughs> no, we allow same-day registration.
0: Ah, so gotcha.
2: that's 100% of registered voters. What that means is that everybody, now we're starting to look at the voting age population. That's like every human being over the age of 18. And um, at this point, we're well into the 80s moving toward the 90% of voting age population. Now, Madison's the high, where I live, is the highest turnout, often the highest turnout place in the state, but we're seeing patterns like this across Wisconsin. Wisconsin will have an absolute record turnout. It will be, I, I, I think it's safe to say, the highest in history. Um, it, whether it will be the highest percentage of the overall electorate, we, we'll see, but I think we'll very probably get there. And that's true, by the way, nationally. Right. We had 100 million votes cast uh, before the polling place is open. Um, we're now looking at the possibility of 50 to 60 million more being cast that throws off all the pre-election calculus about whether Trump voters will vote you know, more on election day. There's a lot of evidence now that Biden voters as well, Trump voters are clearly coming, but so too are a tremendous number of Biden voters, right. long lines in major cities. Um, so voter suppression is a huge issue. It's a vital issue in Wisconsin. It's a vital issue nationally. However, so too, is COVID-19, racism, xenophobia, climate crisis, a military industrial complex that's out of control, a million other factors that are there. And the evidence is so far that uh, across this country and certainly in Wisconsin, people are willing to, you know, fight their way through whatever barrier is put forth and voting it at stunning levels. It's, this is, this is an inspired day. They, they so, simply don't
0: know. It's so interesting you say this. I mean, I um, I was thinking about 2008 and, you know, I, I worked on the Obama campaign in 08 uh, as an organizer. And in 2012, I was uh, one of those national co-chairs that they put out there, right? And I say this because, you know, George Bush was my generation's nemesis when I was in college. And we couldn't imagine a, a worse president, right, in, in, in 2000. And I think some of the energy was captured in 2008. Obviously, it was historic with the first black president. Um, he was an extraordinary or, orator, uh, anti-war as well in the beginning, and, and was taking on a very unpopular Republican Party, um, you know, and a, and a pretty uh, lame presidential nominee. And... The turnout was seismic. It was this. It felt like this. I never in a million years would have thought Joe Biden would be the person to inspire. I mean, it's just looking back at history, because I, I, I wanted to have you want to talk about just the historic context of this moment. Um, you know, have we been here before? And what is Joe Biden? You know, we know what Joe Biden looks like right now. Right. We know he's a neoliberal. We know that he moves on a creature of the Senate. Uh, We know he's folksied and go to Ivy League schools. But I'm very curious how progressives are going to look back on Joe Biden because his his absolute, if he is the president, uh, the crisis that we're dealing with, his absolute need no choice, but to respond to the moment with progressive ideas. I mean, there's, well, there's no neoliberal solution to, there's no incrementalism out of this, as I said in my opening. So how is, how is history going to look back at this moment with Joe Biden?
2: That's a tremendous question and exactly the right question to ask in many ways. Um, let's first off put the, con- the turnout, and the, what we're seeing today in context, and then let's look a little more at Biden. Uh, I would not begin to suggest to you that the turnout today is a Biden turnout. Mm -hmm. I think it is a circumstance turnout. Mm -hmm. It is a moment turnout. And uh, I will remind you that many of our greatest presidents were elected by circumstance or moment turnouts and then rose to that moment and achieved greatness. They didn't come with the greatness. They were sort of thrust into it. And and so that's the way to, to look at this circumstance. People are turning out, I believe, because they have been confronted by the realities of our society. Uh, And it's not that most Americans aren't confronted by it all the time, but COVID-19 made it so grim, so overwhelming, that people know, a lot of people know why they're voting. And they they are voting uh, because it is a matter of life and death. They are voting because uh, their president has lied to them. They are voting because, uh, in a moment, not just of a health care crisis, but also a racial justice crisis, they have seen uh, not just an insufficient response, but a, and, uh, a damaging response from the current administration. Right. Now, how do we put that all in context? No, there are people who are voting today, tens of millions, for Donald Trump, so some people are not just forgiving him, but maybe embracing exactly where he's coming from. And we have to understand that that is a part of our whole, but to me, my sense is that a substantial portion of our bump and turnout is people who really do want something different and better. Hmm. Uh, If Biden, if I'm right about that, and if Biden becomes president, the pressure on him to be different and better will be overwhelming. And The fight will not be between Trump and Trumpism versus Biden and Bidenism. The fight will be between Biden and a movement driven demand that he rise to an occasion that we have not seen him rise to in the past. And that's fine, right? That's, that's, you don't look at, you don't look at who they were. You look at, who they are where they got to what they can do in that context biden has the potential to be a great president uh, a truly great president and uh, and i do not know if he will be that's that's way beyond my speculative capacity but i can tell you as somebody who's written a lot about franklin roosevelt right that while roosevelt was a reforming and very competent governor of new york an impressive governor Without a doubt, who had taken on some of the the corruptions of his time, uh, I think it would be unreasonable to imagine that anyone thought in 1932 that Franklin Roosevelt was going to be who we think of him as today.
0: He that took was that that's off. ultimately the question I had: is did yeah, yeah. the movement see this this essentially an oligarch, right? Um, yeah being how, I mean we, we look back was I mean even Johnson I, I think about this too oh, yeah. I actually think as more it's more comparable to I think the moment is an FDR moment um but the person I see I see Biden more as a Johnson creature of the Senate being able I don't know. I mean but maybe he's not so strong armed in, in
2: you're right. No you're okay. exactly right and Johnson is the comparison figure. I would also suggest to you uh, Harry Truman might be a hmm. comparison figure. Hmm. And remember Truman's 48 victory was a pretty epic victory. It wasn't just that he surprised people, he won big and had swept in a lot of members of Congress. It was a it was right. an important win. So we often get this with uh a president who is uh sort of a lucky break for him, right? Hmm. In this case it's always been him's uh that they get to their position of power. Uh not because they were necessarily the most beloved person of the time or the most perfect candidate, but uh, in the case of both Truman and Johnson, their predecessor died. Uh, in one case, died of illness, the other assassination, but they were each in this position to then build upon it. Uh, Biden's somewhat different because he's coming at it uh, in opposing an incumbent president, not inheriting the presidency. But when we understand that, yeah, that's what the kind of thing we're talking about. And the size of the victory, if indeed it is a Biden victory, matters a great deal. Because uh, remember that in the case of Johnson, he got a, a Senate and a House he could work with, a more progressive Senate and House than he had had before. Uh, he had, by the way, also moderate to liberal Republicans he could work with. And you know what you had happen in 1965 was incredible. You know, you're talking about Medicaid, Medicare, uh, extensions of voting rights, a war on poverty, uh, beginning the process of building out public television. I've interviewed Bill Moyers about this, and uh, it's why the Vietnam War is such a tragedy in our history, because uh, what Lyndon Johnson and the people around him were talking about doing in 1965, 1966, was so epic. They were talking about a complete overhaul of campaign finance reform. One, uh, something that funded candidates up and down the ballot uh, in primaries and general elections and even had a, a system within it for funding third-party candidates to open up democracy wholly. Uh, they had a plan for a American, or at least they talked about the idea of a plan for an American BBC, something as, as sweeping as that. So you, here you are fixing the politics of the country. Here you are fixing the media of the country. And then you're also talking about ending poverty itself. That's, that's what you got. Now, Vietnam interrupted that, blew it up. Created, it was a terrible, terrible error. But you had Lyndon Johnson, kind of a hack politician out of, out of Texas, suddenly in this epic moment. Well, why did that happen? Movements, people power, uh, and the authority to act, right? the Given the power to act. And the scary story tonight, or today, Nomiki, is... That while I, we're talking about the prospect that Biden may win, I think we also have to look at the prospect that he will not have uh, a sufficient Senate. Uh, there's a good chance Democrats may take the Senate today. Uh, I can look at those races and see that prospect, but taking it like with a 50 50 split, even a 51 49, that's feel good. That, that, you know, for progressives who've been so frustrated by McConnell, so frustrated by the last four years, they'll say, wow, you know, we, we've got it now. We've got power. No, that's the problem. A 51-49 or a 50-50 in the Senate puts the power in neoliberal, that's right. uh, even conservative Democrats' hands. Yep. All they have to say is, I might not go with you today, right? Yeah. And, and so it's a very, very we, – we still have today a, a very – tenuous circumstance, one that we have to look at with a great deal of trepidation, a great deal of concern, because of that possibility that Joe Biden comes to power in a circumstance where many of his natural instincts toward uh, compromise, toward centrism, even center-right solutions, toward neoliberal solutions, uh, is, is encouraged by the circumstance he's in. And
0: reinforced. Um, But, you know, I mean, you look at states, uh, you're you're right about the Senate. I mean, I had a a conversation with some movement folks yesterday about, you know, what 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 electorally is to be focused on um, in the next round. And and Mm -hmm. not just movement wise and issues and a general strike and all the things everybody's talking about. It's who it's the Senate. It's 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 the. Kristen Sinemas, who ran as a progressive uh, lawmaker, state law, the most progressive state lawmaker. I should make uh, very clear. Once
2: upon a time.
0: Once upon a time, a whole you know eight years ago in Arizona, and then became the most conservative <laughs> oh, senator. Yeah. I mean, it's just baffling to me that, yeah. Uh, but
2: It's even more. like if I can just intervene yeah, on that to say that the 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 folks who analyze uh members of the u.s senate and say this you know I'll tell you kamala harris is the most liberal senator you know and, and you have yeah. these studies that will you know throw all these different theories out they, they always do it wrong right? right because they don't measure it from the standpoint of uh, you, what you or i and i know you well enough to say would say are the really important measures right the really important votes and so they always had trade they still to this day they measure trade votes in absurd ways uh, they measure war and peace votes often in absurd ways, and and so I would tell you that in the current Senate you have a substantial number of neoliberals. It's not just you know one senator from Arizona. We're really yeah. talking about um, two senators from Delaware, yep. um, one or two senators from Virginia. You know, you start running down that list, and if I can emphasize, you could well end up with in this new class of senators. Coming in, if if Democrats win some seats, with folks who are not not necessarily all that progressive, mm-hmm. from some states, and so or not even all that populist. And sometimes there's a, a distinction between you know a classic progressive and somebody who's at least an economic populist or something like that. Right. Um, and so I think it's a it's we watch tonight we watch the results and and I love talking about all this on the day of the election because. Um, we have to do something we rarely do, which is sort of couch our, couch our statements, right? We just don't know. And so we'll watch those results and we will try to figure out what we get from this. Here's what I will tell you. If by some chance, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are elected with a clear margin of victory, mm-hmm. right? And Donald Trump decides rather than messing with everything to instead you know, start working on his, the paperwork for his personal pardon, um, which, you know, believe me, I anticipate a lot of that or yeah, yeah, getting the kids over to start unscrewing the paintings at the white house and, things uh. like. um, you know, let's suppose you get to that sort of moment. Um, and let's say then what do you need in the house? You need 15 to 20 more progressives coming in. You need people like Kara Eastman out of, uh, Nebraska and you need a lot of others. And you need them to come with a tremendous amount of energy and build up the Progressive Caucus, but beyond that, you know, start really pushing Pelosi and the Democratic Caucus to a much more progressive spot. You need to get in the Senate to get to what we're kind of talking about with Johnson type Roosevelt circumstances. You would need to pick up virtually all of the, the swing states right now in Senate races. You'd want to take it to like 55, 56, 57 Democratic senators. Um, that's where... It starts to then you've got real space to work in. And it needs that. Yeah. It's
0: very hard, though. I mean, this is why Congress is so achievable. Is it's uh, I think something the last couple of years progressives have started to wrap their heads around was statewide office is extremely expensive. We're not talking, you know, a two million dollar congressional race, which you know, progressive for the most part on the you know, has a good shot of of winning, and has one um, have one. But unless you're Marquita Bradshaw, who did not, I mean, shock the world, and maybe there's a moment like this, but when you don't have these yeah. moments and a wave that could give her the ability to win that seat, um, what do you do? I mean, these are $10 million races, 15, 20, 30. I mean, it's crazy. But
2: well, you win the primaries if you can, and then you force the party to treat you with respect. Um, that's challenging. Uh, I always I look at the Cara Eastman situation in, in uh, Omaha. Mm-hmm. She won the nomination in 2018, and frankly, a lot of the establishment really let her down. They, yeah. they weren't there. This time around, because of uh, the fact that, that Eastern Nebraska District is also a presidential district. Exactly. Uh, you can get an individual electoral vote out of that. That congressional race is a different dynamic. There are resources. There is, there's an energy that, and help from outside. And, and so for progressives, you know, obviously, the first fight is the primary. You get through. You get through wherever you can, and then you, you know, you use the growing networks of power within, you know, groups that you've been involved with and formed, uh, but also with, uh, you know, progressive groupings that are influencing the Democratic Party to make demands for, you know, opening things up, allowing, uh, you know, more of that money to flow, and and, but but ultimately, uh, what I would also suggest is this. There are, there are steps that progressives need to take um, in conjunction with unions right. that would build out a, a broader politics. And the one of the biggest crises of the Democratic Party in the last 20 years, in addition to neoliberal you know kind of the neoliberal surge, which actually I'd take back 30 years and take it back into the new, new Democrats and Clinton and all that. But in the last 20 years, what we have seen, is a real collapse of rural progressivism, mm-hmm. and and I, I cannot begin to emphasize it to you that it was there, it was real, in when the Iraq War was uh, coming on. You know, we were having the 2002 vote. You look at where the small number of Democrats who voted against going to war came from, right? And uh, disproportionately, there were people like. Paul Wellstone mm-hmm. and Russ Feingold and you know Kent Conrad. These were people from North Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and you had a number of others too from other states. And, and there was a rural progressive populist anti-war reality that existed. Uh, many of the, the great anti-Vietnam War senators were Democrats from rural states yeah. or more rural states. The party has to rebuild that. It doesn't have to rebuild that to in some sort of like reaching out to white rural voters. That's right. not what it's about. It should never be what it's about. It should be about reaching out to all rural voters and recognizing that the boom areas for um, Latino population, for Asian American population are in rural areas, that the Absolutely. majority of Native Americans live in rural areas, that a huge portion of african americans live in rural areas and if i can just you know get on one last soapbox here if i might of um i desperately wanted which i didn't get i don't get i don't get a lot of what i want in politics i desperately wanted uh joe biden and kamala harris in this 2020 cycle to recognize that there was an arc through the south
3: mm.
2: that they that they needed to work and they needed to put into their cycle. And they got very energetic at the end, but they were slow you know, getting out there physically. I understand COVID, I understand all the dynamics, but they have shown that you can put together a pretty good parking lot rally. And, um, and I, I desperately wanted North Carolina, yeah. South Carolina, Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, and straight on into Texas and and you say well yeah but those aren't all competitive states well where do you make states competitive and how do you get to i'm talking in madison you know mm-hmm. relatively well to do very liberal town we're talking 95 100% above 100% turnout right just breaking breaking through everything Amazing. well how do you get 100% turnout in those african american counties of you know north carolina south carolina georgia Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, Louisiana, Texas, Tennessee as well. Absolutely, Tennessee, you...
0: crazy yeah. to me. Two cities in Tennessee, majority minority cities. Yeah, why are we not able to mobilize and have a Democrat, uh, you know, statewide? It's, it's exactly. Is, and, it's mind boggling me.
2: Why not go for it? Why not go for it? Take take that extra day out of fundraising or something because I got plenty of money, and put that day into or a couple of days into hitting those tarmacs. Yep. In those southern states. And and the reason I, I have advocated for it so strongly is we don't even know where there are people running great campaigns. Our media, our national media hasn't even covered it. Um, you know, the the you know, you've got a very good, very strong African American Democratic candidate for the US Senate in Louisiana mm. who has gotten almost no coverage. No attention. Same thing happening in Mississippi. Mike Espy, um, you know, who I haven't always agreed with on issues. Yeah. But he has built that, that up. He's made something happen. And, and that's, I guess, at, at the end of the day, what I still long for uh, when I talk about this. You know, I obviously wrote a book, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, is that the Democratic Party, uh, not because I'm a Democrat or Republican or anything like that, that's not, you know, I'm not trying to go for a partisan thing. I'm just saying to have a more real politics, to have a politics that might really open things up, you have to go for it right and and i think we will be quite heartbroken uh at some point in the future if we realize that opportunities to go for it were missed in 2020 that you got really close and you could have gone that next step so okay. the worst thing is that it comes that close.
0: no i yeah. think you're right um john uh b- just before you wrap i mean th- this This reminds me of the fight um, post-2016, which was over the DNC. And I know people like to criticize me for trying to reform the DNC. And it's like, how do you reform it? And listen, I I don't know how to reform it, uh, but I probably know more than 98% of the people in the progressive movement. And I say that because... It, is, it comes down to these like committees that are made up of, I mean, we tried to do one thing where we banned conflicts of interest in the voting DNC mm-hmm. member. And that alone would have shifted the committees that decided the, uh, how the budgets were, were spent, how uh, the, 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 the primaries were set up. And it would have really just come down to not having certain consultants, weapons manufacturer consultants in the party mm-hmm. who were not elected, who were appointed by the chair. And so what does that do at the end of the day? It means that you have a party membership that may not agree with us and everything, but at least they agree on spending money in states that we never that we just never should have left. And that's, that's all right. that was about was how do we make sure that there is a Democratic Party in Louisiana and Tennessee and Arizona that's not getting what Tom mm-hmm. Perez promised them, which was a couple thousand dollars. You mm-hmm. need to build a party because Progressives, you know, we can do from the outside and we can run our own races. But if there's infrastructure, that's what lets us once we get past those primaries that really uh, builds the infrastructure, that infrastructure being there is what creates the runway to compete with the Republicans. And it's hard, but you're right. It's a moment. And I'm hoping that Joe Biden, who will inherit this party, uh, recognizes this. And we got to pressure that, too, as well.
2: I, I agree with you. And if I can just close it off. You know, and our always I love talking to you. It's always a pleasure. Same here. And I love the fights um, and the, the struggles. All I can tell you is that as I look across the country right now, I see people who have have kind of grabbed grabbed the the, the moment and and are running. And out I live obviously in, in the middle of the country in Wisconsin and out southwest of me, uh, in southwestern Wisconsin my great 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 grandfather was the first state assembly member from southwest wisconsin in the when wisconsin achieved statehood uh that is a to this day a totally rural district it is all small towns and farms and there is a woman running in that chris marion who's a just a straight-on progressive for economic and social and racial justice and she ran and she got beat two years ago in a, in a state senate race. Now she's in a state legislature race, assembly. And uh, I think it's a very good chance she wins today. And so as I look at this, I, I believe that, um, that the possibilities are everywhere, mm. that the possibilities for building out a party that can win is everywhere. But you have to make that deep long-term commitment to it. Yeah. and one of the best things that was said to me about joe biden intriguingly enough is that while he is he has been a neoliberal and he has disappointed on issues of war and peace and and a host of other matters that that i happen to care about very deeply the person said you know he is a party man i.e. Hmm. he actually cares he's very very loyal to the democratic party and he cares about that party so one of the things that i would just simply close and say is for progressives in addition to fighting for an an economic, social and racial justice, climate justice and peace agenda in this new administration. And you're going to have to start fighting immediately if this administration comes to power. There should also be a fight to convince not just Biden, but other people that if you want to actually leave a legacy with the Democratic Party, it has to go down into those rural legislative districts. Yes. And you have to you've got to finish your presidency not with a decline of Democrats in state legislatures, not with a decline of Democratic governors from where he started, but with an increase. Right. That's the point. In politics, the point is to build up right. and get better, <laughs> not go down and get weaker.
0: Of course, you're alluding to, to movement president uh, Barack Obama, who lost the move, left the movement uh, right after he got elected and lost well, well, 1,200 also- seats, but.
2: And Bill Clinton also had the same thing happen. Lost Congress, you know, yep. Yeah, I mean, lost massive numbers of legislatures. 30
0: years they held Congress and yeah. lost it. I mean, that's an extraordinary loss. Yeah. Well, and the thing
2: is, the thing to understand about this is that, that those losses were not necessary. Right. But if you want to avert them, you A, make the commitment, do the party work that you, you've been very engaged with. But B, you go incredibly big on your agenda. You make your you make your power something that people want to relate to. Mm. They want, they, they see things happening because of you. And it's the difference between whether you go with a neoliberal $2 trillion stimulus or a progressive $4 trillion stimulus. It's the difference between whether you really, really do try to make infrastructure not just a you know building bridges and stuff like that but a vehicle for achieving racial justice right. and economic justice in this country and you can do that and you know look it's it's something where at the end of the day no matter how many gripes we might have we sit here and say wow something big is happening and if something big is happening suddenly you start to get people excited in small towns and rural areas and urban neighborhoods and you have people who have never been a part of it say, "I want to be a part of that," and so it is a it's a intersection of policy and movement building, and you pull that into a political party. You know, it's the point at which you start to talk about really achieving the power to do something good. That's right,
0: John Nichols. It's always such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for your insights, your uh, projections, your uh, you know looking back at history and. And thinking about this moment that we're in, I'm just, just so grateful to have you on. And crossing our fingers for tonight, hope you get to 150% in Wisconsin. <laughs> right,
2: that could be a little tough, but certainly it will be in Madison. Uh, let's just hope that, that we push it as far as possible and that that helps to sweep out across the state.
0: Quick, you know, I've been doing this um, offline. I've been taking bets with folks what the national turnout's going to be. I think it was yeah. about... Uh, it was like fifty five I believe in um sixteen somewhere around there fifty four fifty five percent if I'm correct, and f- a couple points higher and I already messed up on the numbers uh with Obama so I'm projecting to be safe sixty nine percent I actually feel like we might go further nationally sixty nine
2: you're saying sixty nine percent turnout
0: i'm I'm saying nationally that we will get there, but wow. it might i i mean there's no maybe even beyond that i don't know what do you think what's your i think that's
2: you know getting to getting to almost 70 percent turnout in america would be an epic an epic moment um and i love your prediction and i will never disagree with you uh uh, (laughs) i will say that that's a hard that's a hard climb to get to except the one thing that i keep reminding people of is we should never ever compare our turnout to what it was in the last election or even in the best election in America. We should always compare our turnout to Belgium, where they recently had 93%. Unreal, unreal. Yeah. (laughs) Or to Norway, where at least they got to 80, or to Germany, a reasonably comparable country where they've quite frequently been in the high 70s and in mid to high 70s. -hmm. And so, look, I can tell you this. If we get ourselves into a pattern of high 60s, low 70s, even mid-70s turnout, a couple of things happen right away. Single-payer national health care yep. and free college. Get, tell you right there, you want to tell how to get to those things? You think of all the organizing, all the that. stuff you do. Give me a 70, 75% turnout, and I will tell you that, that suddenly our government starts to respond to the whole of the American people, not to just portions of it, right. and we get to big stuff. So and that's why I open primaries. proposal, What's <laughs> I embrace that? your prediction. Thank you. Good
0: well, friends. that's why I mean, looking at a you know the turnout with open primaries in and same day registration, in Wisconsin is such a big deal, and why you know those things matter. Um, getting back to the electoral politics uh, side, you know,
2: do you know there's it? My daughter is working the polls today, and at her polling place there are two tables. One table is for people coming to get their ballot and do their regular vote. You know the whole bit. There's another table just for people signing up to vote today. Wow. Uh, every time I go to that polling place, when I see a line at the same day registration, at, at this, they are young. They are often new voters, first time voters sometimes. Yeah. And to, to see that happening, that's how politics should be. It should Amazing. be, you know, I haven't paid a lot of attention to politics, but I'm into it now. I'm here at the polling place. Don't tell me I can't vote. Register me and let me have that ballot today. That's, that's, right. that's how democracy ought to work.
0: John Nichols, thank you. Thank you. Crossing fingers. All right. Uh, Speaking of Germany, which was just brought up a second ago, we have Arun Arun Chowdhury live from Germany. Uh, We are going to bring him on right now as we are going to move swiftly into the next guest. Uh, Arun is a political filmmaker. He was formerly the first official White House videographer and worked as creative director for Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign. Arun, thanks for your patience. I was just so...
4: Back when we were young people. (laughs) <laughs> yes, yes. No, no, you, you You. and John were great. I just need to correct both of you. Okay, no way 70% turnout. Well, I was uh, going to ask because, you for your prediction. Uh, I mean, less, because every one is harder, right? And especially with the campaigns we run where we don't talk to, like, non-voters, like, where do those, like, people come from? Uh, so, you know, obviously, relationally is where they come from. Um So I think like once you struggle past like 65, I mean, it's just sort of, it's not even like it's not going to be amazing. It's like if you're at 65, getting to 67 was as hard as getting from 58 to 65, right? So like by the time you get to 70, you've just like climbed like five mountains. That's why I said 69%. There's people who don't like think about Donald Trump that much voting in this election. And like, I'm not sure those people are voting in this election yet, right? People who are actually just voting on like an economic recovery or or yes. something like this.
0: I think I mean the only reason why I said sixty nine percent, I know it's 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 far fetched. Like everyone's gonna be like, well you're great no, I, I'm I'm I know you gotta say
4: something like I'm having that's fun. That's a... <laughs> yes. No, and you're showing the thing, right? And what John is saying is true too, which is like Things become possible with like an actual higher base of engaged voters, not just on the electoral side, but on the organizing side. Uh, My other nitpicky thing is I think he's wrong about Madison. I think it's the Milwaukee turnout that's going to really show us uh, how Wisconsin goes and how the nation goes, because that's where we actually have a working class of color. Like, primarily, that's where most Black factory workers traditionally are from. And I think seeing if the Biden campaign reached them is important because they're people who were not reached by the Hillary campaign.
0: We're going to have Angela Yang on a little bit later, who's been doing extraordinary organizing um, for the last four years, specifically with the Black Milwaukee vote. Um, I met her when I was out there reporting a few years ago. So I'm excited for that segment. Um, Arun, this is, uh, this is such a crazy- Oh my God, hi, now. here
4: we are. Oh hi, my God. <laughs> four what? years election later. All right, so yeah. I have a
0: question that I, I was going to ask John, but then I thought, no, Arun might be better for this one. This is like a what-if moment. And I love playing these political exercises. And it's sometimes we do this off camera uh, because, you know, of course, the audience gets really angry. But you know Bernie very well, his organization. um, Obviously, I I was a surrogate in 2016 and and continued on for a few years helping out with the electoral stuff. I have a theory that the neoliberals, I start off the show saying neoliberalism is dead and the movement killed it, but Trump exposed it. Essentially. And I have a theory that, you know, neoliberals are, of course, going to run away with this, say their strategy worked, and this is like why you have to peel the center and blah, 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 whatever. But I actually think that if they really wanted to kill the movement, and this is why I think the neoliberals are just not the sharpest strategists for long term, if they wanted to kill the movement, they should have let Bernie win and then done what they've Mm. done to every other. Frankly, uh, progressive that's reached that level, sabotage from inside with a conservative Senate, with a neoliberal Senate, and not allow him. Of course, they couldn't have predicted COVID, and I'm sure that you know Bernie just yeah. as as Biden is is going to rise to would have r- risen to the occasion and and really um, boosted you know union power etc. But I always thought that if they let him win, it would have killed the movement for the long term, and instead his loss has inspired so many people around the country to run as progressives, Mm. to organize DSAs larger than ever. Unions are now talking about general strikes, like very big unions are talking about general strikes. That, I don't think that would have happened if if they let Bernie win. What do you think?
4: I think there's something to that. And I think we are in agreement with things like, you know, floating around uh, Bernie and Warren as possible cabinet picks is more about defanging, like actual big structural change, as the Warren crowd would call it, rather than uh, you know, rather than promoting these things. I do agree, but I think that there's something in the psychology of a lot of sort of the establishment campaign strategist consultant democratic industrial complex, for lack of a smaller term for it, that has to win this election with the exact same strategy in 2016. Yes. Just has to. It has yes. to like, like they may agree with you like in principle like oh yeah we should run bernie as a front and like you know get them confused and maybe you know like whatever like the plan is uh but like what's really really important to a lot of uh, of people who are really mired in that world is sort of proving that they did nothing wrong in 2016 and that it was any number of accidental or nefarious it was, it was
0: sexism it was uh it was comey it was bernie it was yeah you we've heard it all <laughs>
4: it was All always right, so- something and it's just sort of hard to come away with an autopsy that doesn't say that either the candidate or the campaign was lacking like if you can't find either of those things lacking you're not looking
0: yeah well it's also like you said i mean it's it's at the top you, you the thing that 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 trump right trump seems right now to be flailing um, in a sense that he is not trying to build his coalition, he is trying to solidify the like whatever his new I don't know his endeavor is going to be moving forward. Um, but that 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 radical right cuckoo base. And if he had a real smart strategy, it would be about building the coalition the way that the Biden campaign has. He doesn't has been.
5: have Bannon
4: like he I, was, Thank you.
0: I've been saying that all along. Running-
4: The person who's not afraid to be like, let's run to the left of the Democrats wherever they leave an opening. This is what the Tories get. You know what I mean? Yeah, they're like soft-handed, rich people from like 10 generations. But whenever they see an opening to run against labor on the left, they take it. This is what Bannon is so good at and what Trump is not doing. Like, oh my God, a stimulus check. Like Bannon would be screaming every day, like send them a huge stimulus check, send the people a check. Uh, But those voices don't reach the president anymore. And this is part of, when you take the job in the swamp, you become one of the people. So, you know, maybe one of the most refreshing, even though he's a monster in so many ways, things about Trump was his uh, different approach and sort of, you know, more pragmatic take on politics. And this is what I think brought a lot of non-voters, low propensity voters, uh, you know, we call them white working class voters, but it's not it's not even what it is. It's just sort of people on the periphery of caring about this stuff. And we're like, you know what? That sounds like the thing. So uh, I think... Progressive issues are the winning issues. I think that, like, you know, if once we can look back on, hopefully we can look back on a Trump yeah. era, uh, you know, next week instead of four, four years and a week four, from now.
0: Or <laughs> like, expand uh, the presidency or something.
4: Well, <laughs> one of the things I we'll love to understand is, is that, like, actually what was attractive in the 2016 thing was that he had a real almost social democratic offer. I don't mean that in terms of social democracy. I mean, like, in terms yeah. of social contract, like, you should want more and expect more from my presidency.
0: Yeah. And he did not, obviously, follow through on that, so it left... Oh, you know, no, no the these field. people are
4: Republicans he was hanging out with. You exactly.
0: Know I mean? like, so, these
4: are not the friends of the working man, as much as he might want to be. Yeah. I think there's things he wanted to do. Uh, in his first term, they didn't get to do. I think if he had his druthers, we would actually not be in Afghanistan right now. Yeah. Uh, I think for very different reasons than you or I might pull out troops from Afghanistan. You know, he might have like a lot of nasty racist words in there. But like, you know, this is another thing where he doesn't have those advisors in the White House with him. He just has people from the national security establishment who are like, yeah, but you got to bomb something.
0: And then when he, but when he did um, flux his muscles in the beginning, right, Uh whether it was pulling out troops in turkey for instance i mean there was an immediate snapback from from pretty much anybody in the military industrial complex in dc and globally at that that impulsive decision of his which seemed to come yeah. from some who knows where maybe it was, who knows, actually? There's no sense. I mean, Steve Bannon in his jail cell. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. On the yacht. Um. All right. Arend, I want to talk about the message of the Biden campaign. You're very familiar with this network of folks. You were on the Obama campaign, of course, and in the White House. And so, you know, there's there's a clear difference of opinion. I mean, you are far more progressive than than they are. Um, maybe they used to be a little bit more progressive. Who knows what happened? Money, money, money. But, uh, it seems like their campaign started a month ago. And yeah. and my concern is if there is a win today, whatever, who knows what'll happen, um, that they come away and like you said, they, they say, look at our strategy won. Uh, and now you know, we're in power, we're gonna take over the DNC and we're gonna, uh, you know, everybody's gonna start Have a couple Republicans
4: companies. in the cabinet and seem really sensible and everything. Yeah uh no it's a big worry and no to answer your question i don't think anyone was sort of more or less progressive back in the day it's just that there were those of us who were very progressive in obama's coalition because he was there to end the iraq war there you know people who had sort of given up on electoral politics were like you know what if he does this one thing the rest of it's all bullshit anyway you know (laughs) like and sort of to the credit of the campaign and bernie afterwards like a lot of us think and want more from our government than we used to you know and and that is fantastic but no the biden the biden the, the the problem with learning lessons from the biden campaign is it hasn't really been much of a campaign you know very notably during the primaries they were by far the smallest operation with the smallest footprint doing the least things uh i think The Biden campaign shows us how many things outside actual campaign apparatus matter, you know, the narrative you're telling and your relationships in the media field and you know, who are still the referees and gatekeepers uh, of our electoral process. So, yeah, taking any kind of strategy away from it doesn't make sense, although we get to see sort of the limits of campaigning. You know, and I even think you even see progressives sort of being smarter about it, right? You saw the kind of transition from big organizing to relational organizing. So, so explain distance.
0: that to us. What is, what is the difference between big organizing and relational? There organizing? was the sort
4: of big organizing movement, which was like, we'll get millions of volunteers from everywhere to call millions. You know, if everyone does a million things, then we're doing 10 billion things. And you got eye-popping numbers doing this, right? Like, you know, the Said campaign in Michigan, they'd be like, we called yeah. literally 10 billion That's people. Totally. and You'd be like, whoa, you guys are gonna win, you know? Right. Uh, but those things never translated into wins because kind of distance diminishes signals. Who are, who's these people calling me? There's even some evidence that like when someone calls you, who you have a bad conversation with, you might vote for the other person. Or if you just sort of don't like the person anyway, like who they're representing, you might remind you to vote for it. So these things do need to sort of be thought out and professionalized in some way. But relational organizing is the idea that you as a volunteer, wherever you are, are the perfect messenger for about 50 of your closest friends and relatives because you are a messenger and someone that they will talk to. And so the idea is sort of giving, um, making it very easy and convenient through things we have now that wouldn't I'm in Germany now and these things make the Europeans like the idea of privacy crazy, but scrape your contact lists and suggest people haven't voted yet. And, you know, there's even things popping up when someone in your household hasn't voted yet. It'll be like, Hey, you know, somebody lives at your address (laughs) hasn't voted yet. I know you're all Democrats. Like, you know, it's time to knock on that person's door. Uh, You know, it starts to feel pretty invasive, but it gets the job done. And I think you saw uh, a lot of people coming out of some of the midterms, in 2018, uh, folks like Emily Isaac, who then went on to Bernie, who really kind of scaled this up. And that was, I think, why you saw. And again, the primary was sort of cut short and we're not taking lessons, uh, you know, why you saw the septuagenarian Jewish socialist carving a very healthy 30 percent was actually some of these unlikely uh, people of color, working class voters, mm-hmm. whether they be meatpacking plants of uh, Latino folks in Iowa, whether they be in the back rooms of casinos in Nevada, what added on to his margin of victory, we like to say, oh, the kids are gonna come out. The kids actually didn't come out. Right. It was working class people who'd been talked to the first time he came. Well,
0: to be fair, when we say the kids didn't come out, I mean, they didn't come out at like senior level. They, they came out at traditional yeah. turnout levels. So, you know, I am not a vote shamer.
4: I think there's all kinds of reasons yeah. to vote and not to vote and everyone has to make that decision themselves. But like the sort of demographic thing that people wait for, like it's destiny. Right. It's right. like if youth vote is this certain percent, then all of a sudden everything will change. It's right. like, you know, it's more of a 50 state strategy applied to the population. You're like, you know what? Actually, like, let's let's take a look around and see where all of our opportunities are.
0: Well, and that's why it's important to have experienced folks on your campaign. Right, because when you're
4: organizing smart with smart people, all of a sudden you're running these things in 20, 30 different languages. And even someone who wasn't planning on voting, when you call them and you speak to them in their native language, they're like, you know what? That's the kind of thing that gets you on the bus and gets you out to go vote.
0: Well, that used to be, I mean, Back when there were political machines, and there still are, I mean, New York still has a political machine, it's weaker, but these were the types of operations that you put in place when neighborhoods were divided up by what language you spoke, you had, it was relational organizing. One of the things on the Bernie campaign that frustrated me, um, and you know, I guess there's enough time difference to, to, to explain it is, sometimes they would import elected officials that spoke that language to another city to speak that language to that yeah. group. And you know, that's sometimes that works if it's a big enough name. Uh, But like if it's a Latino from Chicago going to California and speaking to a crowd of, they would rather see their local elected official that they know speak to them rather than someone who speaks Spanish from Chicago. And like that to me just was, uh, there were these little things along the way. I'm like,
4: you got to decentralize, and it's hard. Yeah. Presidential campaign, it's hard yeah. to know how much to run yourself and how much to let go, right? It's that, yeah. Even when it comes to the thing, you know, like content, it's hard to know how much you should make yourself and how much you should actually let the grassroots do that. Like, it's all a bit, like, if, if you could just do everything right, you would, uh, yeah. and that's why it's interesting. Like, you can't do everything right, uh, and you have to make decisions that are, you know, that are contradictory, And I think this is what people forget about politics sometimes. It's like, why didn't you do this? You're like, because they did something else. That's why. You know, they took that exact money they would have done for that and used it on something else.
0: Well, because ultimately, I mean, as you said, it it does come down to these relational approaches. And that's the politics is whether it's relationships in the Senate, whether it's relationships uh, with the media and how you deal with those relationships in the media. MSNBC, for instance, you know, declaring them your nemesis is not going to guarantee that they do any better coverage of you frankly <laughs> you know and like also we know MSNBC yeah, is not bad. on our side yeah.
4: Yeah. You, like you get a quick high off it because everybody mentions yeah. it real quick but it like doesn't actually feel good and doesn't really it's not good for your body
0: yeah it's really I mean it's tough especially when they go after you I mean I, I I personally have moments where I sometimes want to call out certain reporters who've been nasty um and then I have to stop and say don't declare war with someone who has endless supply of ink <laughs>
3: don't yeah. do it exactly. but
0: I mean, okay. Let's let's just real quick uh, assessment of the the Biden campaign and best strategy, worst strategy that they've done um, before we wrap up. Putting you on the spot.
4: Best strategy was, I think, running a low key campaign without that totally blowing up in their faces. Because hmm. uh, I do think like less was more. You know, this was sort of. As long as, the Trump, as long as the focus was on Trump's handling of the pandemic, and once Trump got COVID, there was no way for him to like, you know, sneak out of that well, uh, to actually sort of stay out of the way was as important, a do no harm campaign. I think they did that pretty successfully. And I think that's not something that's just like, oh, they hit him in the basement. That is not what I'm saying. I'm saying that takes campaign staffers a lot of time. A lot of like relationships, a lot of phone calls, a lot of apparatus, a lot of, like it really does take an organization to do that. Um, I think the worst thing um, would have to be sort of the the really open embracing of so-called moderate Republican elements into the party. I mean, I sound like a scolding parent, but these people aren't your friends. Like you don't, you should not be inviting them over. I can't think of any other party in the world especially now that I'm sort of working more internationally, that does this. I can't imagine labor in UK or the Partito Democratico <laughs> in Italy actually having an important congressional a Congress of their party where they invite the opposition in. Yeah. And I think people don't realize the real insidiousness of this, of this Lincoln project, um, besides the fact that it doesn't seem to be particularly effective and seems to be a huge money suck uh, from Democrats. Exactly. Uh, it is that they are harvesting data in places where this moderate messaging works. And that means that, like, Texas and Georgia are immediately in the easy crosshairs to flip back at minimum investment, while Democrats will have to spend maximum investment going door to door, you know, trying to be like, I know Biden hasn't gotten you your check fast enough, but, like, I swear we're good for it.
0: That's, that's fascinating. So essentially they're using this election to... And, and alignment with with biden to use the data from that to basically flip on biden later get um, the reagan democrats back where they want them to be yeah exactly well i mean it's 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 fascinating i mean i understand some of the strategy in appealing like as the, the man of character and taking endorsements from like cindy mccain or whatever but like that could have been enough you didn't have to actually like you said invite them into the party um a run such a pleasure Please come back soon. Next week, maybe uh, we'll talk about what, what, what's happening next and uh, be well in Berlin. Get some rest. I know it's late there. <laughs> you'll be up. Okay. Be wa- well, actually, no, you'll probably wake yeah. up and see what's going on.
4: I'll be, I'll be like, you know, taking 15 minute tuck naps like this.
0: <laughs> All right. Take care. Ciao. Next up, we are going to look at uh, Pennsylvania, see what's happening on the ground there with Rep. Rab, and I think Angela Lang in Wisconsin might be having some tech issues. Dorsey, how are we with that? She, uh, she's not, no, what does no mean? Like, yes, she's in or no, she's not, sorry, not in. Okay, let's just go to Chris Rabb. Uh, Representative Rabb, the 200th district of Pennsylvania. He is a regular on the show, man, not outside. I'm really surprised. I'm not, I'm, you know, you've been outside. I was expecting you to show us the long lines. Uh, I thought you were going to show us like some of the protests happening. Uh, Rep Rab, you're on mute right now. There you go.
6: Hey. Hey, how's it looking out there? It looks amazing. Amazing. I okay, haven't I up. haven't seen the turnout like this ever in eighteen years.
0: Interesting. So when you say amazing, um. I like. I, I think I told you last time you were on the show that in 2016 I I was probably in your district. I think, um, going from polls to polls to polls to see how turnout was, and it was very depressing to hear poll workers talk about lower turnout than than previous years, presidential years, of course. So, is this like Obama level?
6: Is this more? Than I think that? it's gonna. I think it's gonna surpass Obama level. Wow, yeah. pretty
0: incredible. Now, have you heard? of any active voter intimidation happening as, as folks have been discussing
6: um, in Pennsylvania? Not a single occurrence. And I've been preparing for this. Not a yeah. single occurrence that I've heard of or been reported to me um, as both a state rep and also as a ward leader. So I represent, Good. as a ward leader, 11 polling places. Um, and our ward has the highest voter turnout in a very blue bubble. So uh, this is where they would come. particularly focusing on predominantly black polling places. And we've, we've heard and seen nothing. Now, you know, the question I have is I'm about a block away from my polling place. And uh, there were some, uh, some folks in 2008 who tried to show some muscle. Um, Those are the polling places I would go if I were trying to intimidate (laughs) is would be, you know, predominantly black um, active polling places in the city, but but easy to reach um, from the suburbs. Um, so that could happen because um, in a number of polling places that have high turnout, the turnout in the evening at after the work uh, rush um, that it's considerable. Sure. So I could see that happening. Um, I could see that happening. So we'll be prepared, but nothing in the in the first um, many hours.
0: You know, there was word uh, uh, maybe a week ago that Trump was pulling back on Pennsylvania a little bit. But then he gave a speech in Scranton. I think it was more just to taunt Joe Biden than sure. some sort of real, I mean, who knows. Uh, does it seem like they're not as organized in Pennsylvania anymore? I mean, do you feel anything like a difference in the air?
6: Yeah, rallies is not GOTV. Rallies yeah. is just to soothe his his aching <laughs> ego. Um and that's not how you win elections. And I'm not really convinced that um I, I'm not convinced that he doesn't already know that he's lost. Mm. To be perfectly honest. Um just like in the first election, mm. he 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 did I don't think he planned to win. Mm. He wasn't prepared to win. Um I think it was just to, you know, sell more books and resorts or whatever. And so I don't get the sense that, and he said this at rallies, like, what am I going to do if I lose? Who does that? Who does that? So I'm not really, and you know, he's his own worst enemy. So no yeah. matter what nefarious plans people attribute to him, you know, you're not supposed to uh, um, underestimate your adversary, right. but I genuinely believe he's aggressively stupid and um just you know even a broken clock is right twice a day so <laughs> knowing how to talk to folks at a third grade level it, they say it's good for communications but if that's really the level he normally talks at then, you know i think that just it helps him without him being some criminal mastermind and i think that pennsylvania uh will give him an ass whooping of epi- of epic proportions that's what i think
0: so um you know there were like Scranton, um, there, there are different pockets of Pennsylvania that really, you know, this is, I think, where the the whole idea of the white working class vote became um, synonymous with the 2016 election. They, there were, were, were voters that had supported Obama, um, who turned on Hillary Clinton and, uh, you know, used the trade deals that Trump ran on. There were union leaders who had never They've only voted Democrat their entire lives. I mean, I went back and watched a documentary from a couple of years ago on that um, that voting population, and I'm just very curious to see like is there a sense of whether or not those leaders have shifted? Um, who you know their membership listens. I mean, it's it's it becomes part of the culture to realize that. I, I mean, it, I don't know. I mean, I'm just I'm, I'm I really don't have a sense of like what that pocket of Pennsylvania that did turn Pennsylvania red
6: is looking know. like right now. I mean look I mean Pennsylvania is a purple state right. that has has gone democrat for you know a number of election cycles on the presidential level and this was an aberration it was not indicative of the culture of the commonwealth because he only won by 44,000 votes so it's not a a mandate by any stretch of the imagination um this was um, and a very novel candidate shaking things up, uh, who is running against a very unpopular Democrat with the long resume, right? And it's apples to oranges. It is apples to oranges from 2016 to 2020. Right. It, it, there are just so many things that have changed. One is we, we know his track record. We know what he's done and how poorly he's done it and how many lives have, have uh, fallen as a result of his ineptitude, um, so there's no more. There's no more glitter there, right? Mm-hmm. So he has a very loud and loyal base that maybe has sustained itself, but maybe he has shrunk and been become louder. But he, who is he building? I mean, his base is not expanding, and the He's very not building people, his
0: coalition, no, right? Exactly.
6: There's yeah. no coalition, and th- these uh, these vaunted um, white suburban women, um, you know do not appear to be, uh, they seem to be falling out of love with him. Yeah. Um, and I also don't know how Republicans who are not hardcore MAGA folks are going to come out if they come out at all. They they may vote for Biden or they may just stay at home, but I don't see them uh, walking in lockstep behind him because he's a Republican. I just don't. So,
0: so this, I have a, an interesting question for you. Um, there's, there are those Republicans that are going to vote for character and decency and all the stuff that Joe Biden's been saying instead of uh, voting against you know Donald Trump. But down ticket, they still might vote for the Republican state senator on the ballot, or the rep- Republican rep. And that's really hard right now because they're still turning out. Obviously Democrats are too uh, at record numbers, but you're you know, the legislature in Pennsylvania is very, very close. So, where yes. do you see that lining up?
6: That's a great question. And we have no idea until after <laughs> eight o'clock, because you're right. For those of us who are uh, state lawmakers, we have small districts. I represent 65,000 people. Now, granted, that's large for some states, but 65,000 versus 13 million that a U.S. Senator, our governor, represents. Um, and state Senate, it's around a quarter million.
0: Yeah.
6: So there is a lot of ticket uh, splitting where they're like, okay, I don't like the guy at the top, but I'm voting for my person. My person is good. They're not a, a joker like the rest of the folks, right? So that happens. But the way we got early voting in Pennsylvania,
0: well, you but out. By
6: sacrificing straight party uh, uh, voting,
0: I lost the last thing you, you said. You cut, out, you cut out for a second.
6: In order for the bill to pass to get uh, no-excuse mail-in balloting, um, we had to give up um, uh, straight-party voting. So you could press one button in Pennsylvania and say all Republican saying. or all Democrat or all Green, what have you. And now that's no longer the law of the land. And as a result, hmm. um, there could be conservative Democrats um, Who are in trouble if they say you know what i'm just going straight republican or the converse right like i'm gonna go with biden at the top but my my republican he's not really a a trumper you know so we we don't know how what the impact is positive or negative based on who's at the top of the ticket and it's anyone's call and they're going to be very close races such that we may not know who is going to be in the majority um uh tonight um, and that could last because for, you know, for your viewers, we have mail-in ballots that can be accepted through Friday at five o'clock. But the, the Supreme court, the U S Supreme court may come in and say, Nope, can't do it. They're, they're kind of put us in a holding pattern. Um, and the problem with that is they allowed us to continue. But then when we have the election results tonight, they may change their mind, which is deeply problematic. Like, why would you have to wait to see what the election results are at the polls to determine if people should have their ballots counted if they did everything they were supposed to do and they were postmarked by November 3rd, et cetera, et cetera. So we're not going to know potentially until... um, And then we, we have provisional ballots, overseas ballots. I have colleagues in the state house who have won by fewer than 100 votes uh like maybe three of them wow. we have a lot of competitive races largely in in suburban philadelphia in the counties in the collar counties where most of this uh, the pickups can happen and so we we may not know for a week
0: and how many um what's the the count like how close is it in the legislature right now
6: so we have to we have the net nine. So if we lose some incumbents, we're going to have to make up for that with an additional nine. Um, out of uh, a, a legislature on the House side of, of 203, we're the largest full-time state legislature in the country, and we only need four seats in the Senate. We have 50 uh, members in the Senate, and we, we could pull that off depending on how strong Joe Biden's coattails are, and we just don't know.
0: Rep. Rab. Always a pleasure. Good luck. Can't Thank wait you. to see uh, maybe next week we'll have some results for you <laughs> from you. Um, but it's just always a pleasure. And and, and thanks for, for joining us to give us an on
6: the ground perspective. Always glad to be on.
0: Okay, guys, we're going to take a quick one second break. Um, and we will be back to discuss Bernie Sanders launched an organization a few years ago called Our Revolution. I'm sure you know it. Our Revolution rallies more than 500 thousand voters this election making 3.3 million voter contacts uh we will have the executive director on to discuss just that right after this very quick promotional break to make sure that you're subscribing so i'm going to double down on it join us as patrons (laughs) so we can pay our team and uh subscribe so we can pay our team Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. All right. Our revolution, uh, of course, it was launched after Bernie Sanders' primary run in 2016. Uh, It is an organization that is there to basically organize a political revolution strong enough to challenge the structural forces that threaten our survival for society. Full disclosure, I was once a consultant from our our revolution uh, when we were in the DNC chair fight, um, but I did not work with Joseph. Now you have to connect. I have to say this right. Givargese, is that Guy-var-gays. right? Givar Givargese. Why did I not know that? It's like sometimes people I've known for fifteen Sorry. years won't say my name right. I'm like, how do you not know how to say my name?
5: Yeah, no, I have this problem <laughs> since childhood. It's a good problem to have.
0: It's okay. I'm, I'm okay with it, but as long as I, I say it properly. Um, thank you so much, Joe, for joining. I, you've no, got some big for news. Me. <laughs> Appreciate it. Uh, so, you guys, it, there has been an amazing effort to rally voters across the country, make voter contact. Can you talk a little bit about like the the work that you've been doing this election cycle?
5: Sure. Um, we are powered by a grassroots army of volunteers, and over the course of the last month, we've done GOTV. Uh, virtual rallies in states all across the country we've engaged close to uh, a million people on those virtual GOTV rallies Uh, we mobilized uh, tens of thousands of volunteers and we've made close to four million one-on-one voter contacts so it's a dramatic uh surge of progressive energy in this moment now that being said uh i think part of the reason we're seeing that is because we endorsed 450 candidates going into
3: whoa
5: election yeah 450 88 percent are down
0: ballot
3: wow so this is
5: bigger than biden this election
0: i'm really curious about this because there's this whole theory that You know, and this is some of the neoliberal attacks on our revolution. Some of these stories that went out a few years ago about, like, well, their win record's not that great. And I was always like, yeah, have you seen the Democrats' win record? You lost 1,200 seats when Obama was president. Like, come on. But the whole theory is like, oh, well, you can't endorse too many candidates because, you know, then you won't win and you need a good win record. But what I'm hearing here is that by having this many candidates supported, Uh, you're actually building like a movement on the ground that will of course support, you know, ground up support rather than top. Yeah, no,
5: that's right. I mean, we, you know, and it's not that we're, we are strategic in our endorsement. So it's not like somebody shows up and Hey, you know, they're wearing our revolution t-shirt or a Bernie t-shirt. We give them our endorsement, right? A lot of this is based on where we have organization, Um, and where candidates have viability. So we are uh, trying to be strategic in our endorsements because we want to exercise power by winning, right? Um, And so the win rate is important. Um, That being said, uh, both parties have ignored a lot of down-ballot races. And those down-ballot races are the bench, the progressive bench, but they are powerful positions in and of themselves, right? Um, you know, if uh, you know, we're running folks like to be drainage commissioner uh, in the Houston metro area, well, that's a place that's getting inundated by, you know, floods and climate change. The next drainage commissioner, of Brazoria, Texas, is positioned to help implement a Green New Deal at local level. Um, You know, and I think that's what's exciting. So there's a tremendous amount of energy uh, around trying to win, right? Trying to get people in positions of power where we can advance our agenda systematically.
0: So you, um, you were a union organizer, you uh, directed Good Jobs Nation, uh, and and I'm curious how unions which you know not obviously not all unions are the same um but how unions are working with this these down ballot races i mean there's i come from new york and so uh we often don't find ourselves even though progressives um that are challenging the establishment even though we are probably more aligned with unions we often don't gain the support of unions because of the dynamics of budgets for instance like you know they in New York, in particular, you know, unions are concerned about how much money is going to be allocated in the budget with the governor, and so they don't want to go up against the governor because if, if he, you know, wins, then they might he might hold that against them. That's just like an example. So, how how are unions working down ballot right now? Are they working more with progressives? Do we do we see this kind of organizing?
5: I mean, I think um, even now, uh, and I say this as someone who you know spent two decades in the labor movement. Yep. Um, you know, I still feel like they're insular, um, and you know they—you uh, know—in many ways, these are uh, organizations that started out as movements but became bureaucracies, right? Um, and when you have those bureaucracies, walls go up. And there is a little bit more of a reluctance, a caution to partner with popular movements, right? I mean, you saw that around Bernie's first run, right? Even though Bernie was great on all of the issues, right? I mean, I, I helped organize the strike in Washington where Bernie and Keith introduced the $15 minimum wage bill back in 2015. Unions... Yeah, unions were not uh, willing to uh, take that risk, and I still see that. Although I think it's beginning to change, I think it's beginning to change.
0: Um, so let's think about what happens moving forward. Uh, you've, you know, our revolution has made these phone calls, investing in in local candidates upwards, uh, which helps the top of the ticket. Un, you know, it's undeniable that 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 they work hand in hand, and this is a wave year potentially. Uh, but say, say we Biden does get elected. where does our revolution move in pressuring a new president um, potentially in, in really taking on these progressive solutions to, to a crisis that I believe uh, there are no other options. There's no incrementalist way out of this crisis.
5: No, I think that's right. and I think it is imperative uh, you know on the progressive movement to move left. To be bold, I think that starts right after the election. We have to interpret the results. Um, it was not just a referendum on defeating Trump, right? I mean, Biden won the argument. You you could say who's best, who could we put up that you know is the best candidate to beat Trump. Um, but I think Bernie won the war of ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, he galvanized young people. He galvanized. Uh, a a lot of people to get involved in the political process. And I think what we have to do is interpret the the results of the election, and hopefully it is a wave, and we sweep not just the White House, uh, but Congress, um, but down ballot races as well. And we then focus on uh, some strategic places where we can set policies um uh where we can build momentum from the bottom up around some of the things that we want to see changed in washington you know and now one example for example uh just to throw up you know today 15 dollars minimum wage is on the ballot in florida right, right? if it passes in florida right it's yep. uh, a purple state right that shows that it's good politics in addition to being good policy. And we should press Biden, right? First 100 days, you need to raise the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour. We also need to be strategic um, in terms of giving the administration advice. Uh, And Republicans are really good about strategy, I think, right? They understand when they get elected, right? When they get into positions of power, their goal is to kneecap the other side. Exactly, take away power from the other side. So that's when you get Scott Walker, right? John Kasich, they become governors and they take away the rights of workers to organize. That's right. They destroy unions. So for us to be strategic and progressive movement, we've got to push Biden to lead on growing the American labor movement that's got to be a first 100 day priority. We, if we're going to succeed in creating a progressive America, we have to create organization. And the best way to do that is uh, to do it through workplaces and to do it through uh, workplace organization and that's unions. And, you know, so I think we've got to go left um, and we've got to push and, but we've got to be strategic to build power um, and to take, uh, you know, popular items like 15 um, and push them over the finish line very quickly.
0: Right. I mean, because, e- e- listen, I, I, I live in New York, $15 minimum wage. We've been fighting that for 10 years. And if, if you really want to survive, I mean, there's been a national analysis of this in any major city in America, you have to be making upwards to $34 an hour to pay for a one-bedroom apartment. You know. In many cities in America. So, you know, we, we have to move quickly on this. Obviously, it's different wherever you are and you have to factor in small businesses and, and there's a lot of different conditions here. But these are the movements and these are the items that, you know, Republicans have had such been so strategic about like kneecapping us, as you said, that $15 minimum wage wasn't even on the table. <laughs> like, it's half of what it would take. Um, Joe, I am so grateful to you. We're, we're running out of time. I know we've been running long, and I would love to have a longer conversation with you. So please come back on. we uh, will talk about next steps and, and be well. Keep up the amazing work. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. All right. Let's Let's uh, let's talk to a Trump supporter. Let's figure out what's going on with our heads right now. How are we feeling? Scotty Nelsius. Oh, switch it up, Scotty. You're sideways. Scotty. Wait, you're sideways. Flip your camera. <laughs> there you go, and and you're muted too. Go.
3: Yeah.
0: There we go. Hello, and- Scotty. Scotty is back. Uh, you know, you you were up. Oh, we lost your video. Oh, sorry. There we go. I'm back. We're having a lot of technical issues today. Angela Lang, for those of you guys who wanted to see if she had some technical issues, we had her and then we lost her, but we're hoping to have her on this week uh, so we can talk to her about what's happening in Wisconsin. Now, Scotty's here. Scotty, all right. You were a Trump surrogate in 2016. You were on CNN as a contributor. We used to go to war with each other on every cable news network. But one thing that we had in common at that time was we understood that the establishment, was uh the big business establishment we just had different solutions to these problems was was really what was uh kneecapping working people across this country now donald trump has become the establishment <laughs> so how what message i mean it's just i i don't i don't understand right now what what his message is it seems like his he's not trying to build a coalition like he was in 2016 i mean do you do you think that's the case what do you what do you think
3: is happening on his campaign <laughs> well, we're, we're six hours out. We're going to see with whatever he's doing, if it's successful or not. No, Mickey, we're just well, a few not, hours out that by tonight. But <laughs> and, that, and that's a big question right now. That's, and, and the response that comes to it, I'll be honest with you, I'm in D.C. Um, I agree. What is his message? I, there's a, It's kind of all over the place, and especially in the issues that I want to know about. I still do not believe we have enough of a clarification on the foreign policy. But I can't say that anything about the other side either. I think we focus so much, you know, when you if if you would have had the candidates on, Amiki, you probably would have spent two minutes and five minutes on the coronavirus. You would have spent about healthcare, but you would have tried to hit all these issues, especially if you knew those questions had already been answered. You wouldn't give just this stale interview. Both candidates have done a poor job of getting their platform and their policies out outside of just these two or three issues that I just felt like they were regurgitating every time they did an interview. He has become a bit of the swamp, the people around him. That's been the most disappointing part of the last four years. But I will tell you this, if he is reelected tonight, um, hold on to to your knickers because he's not going to care because he's going to understand that he's just going to, we knew he was going to be a wrecking ball like Miley Cyrus. And uh, this time he's bringing the the bulldozer with him and every other construction site equipment. And he's going to tear the whole place apart. Wow. You're saying that in a good way or a bad way? I can't quite figure it out. Well I think it's a good way because if we've learned and this is whether you're uh, whether you're Republican, Democrat, independent, libertarian, um, I think we've learned that our government is not good. There's some major parts of of whether we're talking about the intelligence, whether we're talking about the uh, state department, there's some really bad parts of our government. Now, even if you're mean that a liberal, you get rid of your government and, and replace no, it with that's us. <laughs> like, but you rat out no well you Eric Prince and Betsy DeVos running the government is not necessarily a solution to the problem and, and I can understand and respect from that perspective from others. some might say, you know what? I'm pro charter school. I am pro school choice. I want parents to have more decisions. They might like Betsy DeVos. They might not like everything about her. But in this case, we have learned that there's some real rats within the government. Can, I mean, and these are rats that are not just there for one administration. They're rats that have been there for decades. And these rats need to be rooted out, especially within our intelligence community right now. I mean, when we're spying on American citizens, we have to get to the root of that. That's got to stop.
0: I, I I hear you on that, um, and that's something I think the left agrees with on segments of the libertarian right, and and maybe even some supporters of Trump's. But with that being said, it's not like number one, Donald Trump didn't have the opportunity to prove these messages that he, he had four years. He had the Senate, and and part of that he had the Congress. Okay, so he did nothing about the intelligence community then. Um, and 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 second to it, like, hi, we have crises of of existential crises on our plate right now. And Donald Trump has done everything in his power, not just to not deal, to exacerbate those crises. And part of me thinks that there's some sort of financial motivation, disaster capitalist approach, which is very much, you know, something that happens in these crises, never let a crisis go to waste as Rob Emanuel once said. Uh, I just don't understand how that's not the issue that's on your mind right now, how he has exacerbated COVID, how he decided, you know, talk about a wrecking ball to government. He eliminated the CDC basically. Um, And look what happened. You know, hundreds of thousands of Americans have died, millions have been sick, and now we, have, we are in economic spiral to worst levels since the Great Depression. And he's doing nothing about that.
3: Well, and this is once again where we're probably going to disagree. Uh, I, I disagree with that because the president did say over and over, I will sign a clean bill. The problem is, once again, like everything else that works in government, there was so much pork added onto that, uh, to that bill that had nothing to do with actually getting real relief to the streets of America. They wanted to attach every little pet project, every little congressional uh, pushback, kickback that they could get clean bill. Let's do a clean bill that actually brought immediate aid to the people of America, to our small businesses, and that's it. Save all the other issues for for debate down the road. And the Democrats in the House would not do that. They did not want to give a win to the Republicans, they did not want to give away to Trump. Mitch McConnell is in the Senate. Let's start with that. Number two, it's not
0: like he's. It, 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 but I you need the when, House. You got I love, to have the House. I, I love when when the president's like, oh, it's 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 the House's fault. It's the House's fault. You're the president. You if you don't understand how Washington functions. And first off, the bill that you presented, hi, it's 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 a good like eight months late. Eight months late. People are haven't paid They've been their trying rent. Trying to push this months
3: months. since May, and they no, they have not. They didn't have a real solution
0: in May. There was the Heroes they, Act. They, they tried to push back on that. <sighs> They gave a little bit of money, as you know very well. You know the cost of living, and I know you know this. I know you know that this should be bigger. Um, it should because, have been bigger. I agree 100%, but don't include all the other little pet projects in on this. Well, and that's where order. being a, a president who understands how
3: Washington works... So would uh, you have screamed at him if he signed it as an executive order? Because he could have signed it as an executive and order. And he didn't, but so there you go. Should, should he have? Do you think he should Absolutely. have? Absolutely. I think they should have...
0: If it means someone can materially... Uh, pay, pay their rent. Of course, absolutely. So I he always find that so You would have called him a
3: dictator for that
0: one. No, I wouldn't have. I would have. I okay. have always said if he were to any money right now. Is money that helps people feed their children. Uh, take care of their health care costs, pay their rents and their mortgages, the gas to get to work. Any money right now is good for the American people. Is it enough? Of course not. Um, Scotty, real quick before we tie up, uh, wrap up. Prediction. I mean, I I hate saying prediction because I was told not to do that, actually. Wait, I shouldn't say that. (laughs) Okay, this is my prediction. What do you think the rate of turnout is going to be? I am
3: going with 69%. I know that's big. Nationally. That's big, but I, th- I think nationally, I think it's going to be that way. I think that the both sides are engaged. I will, I will actually be closer to you. I'll, I'll maybe get sixty five percent, but I still think that I think that's really, really good. Um, and now, Mickey, just real quick, credit to you. This is where you and I. This is why we get along. I agree with you. Get the money to the people, and I. W- this is why they need to listen more to us. If we can find that common ground, um, it helps people. Uh, I agree. Big turnout. Cautiously optimistic. You already have the Biden campaign um, saying there's other pathways to the White House besides Pennsylvania and Florida. Not what you want your senior staff putting out there on Twitter. Uh, That kind of shows that they're kind of, you keep, you and I both know, you can't get anywhere without going through Florida. And that's not a bad thing. So uh, it kind of makes me wonder. That was one red flag. stopped
0: Hillary in 2016. Um, I remember the moment when way before uh, they called it, we were sitting there at SiriusXM looking at Florida going, oof. Anyways, we'll see. Uh, Scotty, it's been a pleasure. Hope to have you back on soon. We can debate, we'll pick a topic and debate it like we used to. (laughs) Fun times. Fun times, good times with no
3: Mickey. Bye.
0: <laughs> Bye. All right. Uh, before we wrap up, we have to talk about the state of, 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 essentially the map, like how it works. What's, what's going on with these districts. I mean, we're talking about Pennsylvania and, and Florida with gerrymandering. Um, that's also on the line here with state legislatures. We just talked about Pennsylvania. Uh, we're going to have David Daly join us right now. Is he ready to go? He There he is. Hello, David Daly. Uh, he is the author of rat, effed why your vote doesn't count and unrigged how americans battled back to save democracy former in chief of salon thanks for joining us david and Always for your patience <laughs>
7: no problem busy One day. of those
0: days, crazy days yes yeah, so we're you know tech issues people on the ground blah blah um so david we had representative rab from pennsylvania on just a few minutes ago and he was talking about how while they could even under they, they could possibly know the results of the presidential election if it's cut off and they don't look at the ballots, it could affect the makeup of the legislature. And of course, we're going into redistricting very soon. Um, and this is what you write about. So I, I, I want to get a sense, let's just start off with that. What is on the line right now, given the voter suppression that's happening everywhere in the, around the country um, with these mail-in ballot situations, uh, what's on the line with redistricting in states like Pennsylvania and others?
7: Everything is on the line as far as redistricting. This is the crucial year. It's 2020. We redistrict after the census. So election years that end in zero, they matter more because right after that, state legislatures redraw not only the state legislative maps in these states, but also the congressional delegation maps and Republicans had the upper hand on this in 2010. They set out with a really deliberate strategy called Red Map, designed to win state legislatures in Pennsylvania, in North Carolina, in Florida, Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin. These states sound familiar, right, because we talk about them with in regard to being competitive swing states and we talk about them as being the key states as far as voter suppression activities um, the legislatures in those states have passed you know voter id bills and eliminated days of early voting and closed precincts oftentimes have made it harder to to vote in the middle of a pandemic right back In April in Wisconsin, the state legislature actually sued to force voters to show up in person at the first height of the pandemic back in the first couple weeks of April. So all of these state legislative seats are on the line this year. Republicans managed to hold on to all of the chambers in all of those swing states this entire decade, even though in many elections, Democrats won hundreds of thousands of more votes. Mm-hmm. Democratic candidates in Pennsylvania won more than 300,000 votes more than Republican wow. candidates. And yet Republicans hold these huge supermajorities. In Wisconsin, it was 200,000. And so, you know, the key states as far as redistricting, you know, I'm not optimistic that Democrats are going to win a chamber of either uh either chamber in Pennsylvania. Wow. Those have simply been gerrymandered in such a big way, but the Democrats have the governor in Pennsylvania right now who can veto a bad partisan map and they control the state supreme court. So uh, so Pennsylvania will have a fairer map in the next decade. The states where this is going to be most crucial, Texas, 9 seats separate Democrats from a seat at the table in redistricting. Interesting. 9 seats is in that house. close. That close. It was 101.49 yeah. at the beginning of the decade. Now just nine Whoa. seats. I am told the Democrats feel very confident about seven of those and that there are 11 other targets. So if they can pick up two, that is huge. North Carolina, Democrats need to pick up either five seats in the state Senate or six seats in the state house in order to have a seat at the table there. The governor does not have any say in redistricting mm. in North Carolina. So it is flip a chamber or be on the outside looking in for the next 10 years in both of those states?
0: So, I mean, it's really fascinating to see how fast Texas was able to bring in that many. This is also at a time, uh, when the Democratic Party, of course, sucked resources away from state parties, and so they, uh, there was the schlacking um, that President Obama said that that they got in 2010, which was a really bad year to get schlacked, <laughs> really, like you said, a zero year um, that affected, uh, just affected so much, and and of course, you know, Obama could have said like, oh, well, let's put some money into state parties, and you know, start. <laughs> But still with that, they still were able to turn around those seats. Uh, did that happened just in the last couple of years since this, this? Absolutely. Are they progressed. Democrats,
7: Democrats made good headway in 2018 good. in Texas um, and they are set up to do it again. You saw with Beto O'Rourke's campaign yeah. uh, that uh, Democrats were able to really mobilize in a statewide race. The, the district lines were really key. I mean, Texas has been, you know, Texas looks redder than it is because its congressional delegation is about two-thirds Republican but that's because of how they drew these district lines it's because they took it's because that they took Austin yeah. liberal Austin and they divided it up into four parts and it elects four Republicans right. um, so Texas on the state House level has long been a state 52 53 percent Democratic 47 48 Percent Democrats. Uh, but the, the way that the lines have been drawn, Republicans have been able to hold on to outsized power. Mm-hmm. Slowly, the demographics have changed and have risen and Democratic get out that the vote efforts uh, are there. O'Rourke and others have uh, forward, a majority has been deeply involved. Uh, a, a lot of outside groups bringing in a lot of outside money, uh, trying to, to register voters and um, and flip the state. If Democrats are not successful this year, Republicans have already indicated that they are going to use citizenship data and they are going to move to redraw the Texas State House next year with citizen voting age population. So this is the next uh, the, the next piece of their galaxy brain. So what does right? that
0: mean? Like, can you explain that a little bit more? Sure.
7: Right now, we redraw all of these districts based on total population. Everybody counts, whether you are a citizen, a non-citizen, a voter, a non-voter, over the age of 18 or under the age of 18. The idea of representation, uh, a set down from the Constitution, even though the Constitution at the same time, you know, called some people three-fifths of a person, it still made clear that for the purpose of drawing these congressional lines, you had to use total population. Uh, States have followed that. What Republicans are saying now, however, is that that states do not have to necessarily follow that. States could, if they wanted, use citizenship uh, population, draw lines based on that. When you do that, you end up with districts that are older, more conservative, whiter, and more rural. Um, You could, according to a, a Republican study, turn back about a decade, possibly even two decades of demographic change in, in Texas simply by changing the way you redistrict?
0: So I'm going to push back just a little bit there yeah. on this Republican study. Well, that makes sense. Um, older voters, baby boomers, previous to millennials with the largest generation in history, and, and they're aging out. Um, and with that, you know, dying, frankly, like there's no other way that the, the population decreasing. And especially in the next 10 years, that's bound to happen. Uh, and millennials or those under 40, right, largest generation in history are going to age up. So isn't there a sense that there might actually be a situation in which their projections just matching up to how populations age and move may not benefit them? It might be a pushback against you know, drawing these lines are going to benefit older populations. Older yeah. now, but...
7: Sure. I mean... I think that's possible. Um, I think that what we need to remember is a lot of people believe that the redistricting and the gerrymandering that happened this decade didn't matter so much because eventually, over the course of a decade, people's political opinions might change or people right. die, they get older, they age in. And what we've seen... Is that these lines have held fast all decade long? Mm,
1: mm. You know,
7: Democrats have not won back a chamber in any of those states. And while they did take back the US House in 2016, they haven't made any gains in Wisconsin's delegation or Ohio's delegation or North Carolina, which is still 10 3, Ohio is still 12 4. You know, the Democrats only were able to uh, make those gains in Pennsylvania and take back the House. Uh, in 2006 in, in 2018, in part because of new maps in Pennsylvania and Florida and Virginia and Minnesota that were court ordered because of partisan right. gerrymandering. Uh, so the lines have held because the lines are based on more data and better technology and more sophisticated computer software in an age of such hardened partisanship that you can pretty much tell how people are going to vote. Um, so uh, I think you're right that it is difficult to hold back demographic waves forever. Republicans sure are going to try to die trying, though.
0: Hopefully, they do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so real quick, sort of pro, uh, projection of the not necessarily the president, but how things look on the ground. Um, maybe give us a little bit of hope, potentially. Yeah.
7: Uh, I, yeah. I think let's... there's a lot of hope to be had out there. 100 million people voting early. We are on target for record turnout, possibly the biggest turnout since 1908 overall. Um, no, with that kind of turnout, you could, you could flood all of these attempts at suppression. You could flood these lines. You could flip the Texas State House. All of these things that people never imagined possible, right? Uh, I think there's hope to be had in the fact that you are getting early counts out of Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan, a sense that that folks are doing a faster job of counting these ballots than anybody imagined. Uh, so w- we might actually get a sense from these states earlier, which would pre- prevent the kind of chaos uh, scenarios uh, that a lot of people worried about heading into tonight. Um, you know, you've gotten a court ruling this afternoon from a federal judge in DC that required the Postal Service to do a sweep of 27 processing centers where the number of ballots uh, processed but not uh, delivered, had been dipping below 90%. So we're talking about places like Detroit and Philadelphia and central Pennsylvania and South Florida. And they've said, you've got to go in there. You've got to sweep. You've got to look for any of these ballots and you've got to get them where they need to be now. And that is a good sign. Uh, There are very few signs out there that things are going wrong. Uh, There are very few uh, trouble signs at the polls, beyond the kinds of long lines that we expected, Um, and so much more than the White House and the Senate is on the ballot tonight. These down-ballot races are going to affect the nation for the next decade. So much of what we have lived through these last 10 years has been about redistricting. It's been about voter suppression. It's been about voter ID bills. 80,000 votes that tipped the presidency to Donald Trump in 2016 from three of these gerrymandered states that went ahead and did all kinds of different suppression efforts. This is the year to have a wave. If you're going to have a wave, have it in this zero year. Let's redraw fair maps and let's head into the next decade with every vote counting.
0: David, I am so happy you do this work. I mean, I... (sighs) it's really just such a shame that Democrats did take their eye off the prize. Um, and, and, and we're very focused on the presidency, um, the last cycle of the last presidency. And so I'm hoping there's been an awakening and your work, um, is a big part of that in, in, in helping us understand what's the strategy of the Republicans the next time around. Um, well, you know, we'll see what happens. We're going to be watching very closely and, uh, I, you know, maybe we'll have you back on to see, to analyze what did happen. <laughs> Any time <laughs> at all. Accomplish. All right, David Daly, a pleasure. And thank you to everybody. Uh, special shout outs to everybody in the chat right now. Uh, R.Y., thank you so much for, for your love. Uh, lovely Pariah qu- quote says, if the discussion is intelligent, fact-based, honest, and I'm for guests from across the political spectrum, I'm very, it very rarely happens now or for the past 40 years. Best kudos Uh, But kudos for Nomi Key's efforts. That was because we debated a Republican uh, Trump supporter. Mm -hmm. And thanks to Professor Hyavri Kay and everyone in the live chat. Uh, Special thanks to MIDI doctors and Jules for working the algorithms. Quick little promo we might do some lives tonight if some stuff starts to break. So, Um, make sure to click that little bell. If you're not already like subscribing uh on our channel, make sure to click the bell too, because you'll get an alert. And I'm specifically talking about if things start to escalate on the streets. Uh, we will have some folks out there who are gonna call in and tell us what's happening on the ground uh in New York and other parts of, of the country potentially. But we we wanna make sure that we're covering whatever could happen. I mean, maybe nothing happens. Maybe we go to bed, maybe we don't have anything to talk about. I remember in 2016, I was on air all day and uh clearly we were shocked so um it was very tough (laughs) it was very tough the night of the election to not be able to officially call it and then they did of course call it for donald trump uh so you know we don't know what's going to happen um i'll be joining the majority report but let me just double check what time i'm going to be joining the majority report so i give you the right time i think i'm going to be on at 11. uh if i yeah i'll be on the majority report at 11. i will be on josh fox's show on tyt at 10 p.m. And I'm going to be on Al Jazeera also. Hang on one second. I'll find you that time. Look at me. I'm not prepped for this. I didn't expect to promo. But so you guys know uh, when, I, when I'll when i be on. Uh, yeah. I'm going to be on with Shahab Ratanzi. And I think Thomas Frank, too. I think they have me on with him. Which we tried to get him for our show today. And he was booked up, obviously. Uh, let's see. what is We are going to be on at... 9.20 EST uh, on with, oh, Steve, oh yeah, Steve Clemens and Thomas Frank. Steve Clemens is a huge Joe Biden supporter and Thomas Frank is our, our dear friend. So it should be a really interesting conversation. So uh, 9.20 on Al Jazeera and then uh, later at uh, 10 with, Josh Fox and 11 on the majority report and somewhere in the midst of all that we might be going live. Thank you to everybody. Now is the time to become a patron. If you have it in your budget, because these are hard shows to produce and we have an amazing team, uh, Piper Simon Dorsey producing uh, Mike, you know, we were able to put this together on short notice and I'm just grateful for our team because it, it really does take teamwork. So if you can join us on patreoncom slash the Nomi key show, it makes all the difference. All right. We will see you tomorrow. Maybe with the result, maybe not, or we'll see you live tonight. Take care, everybody.